This is Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in anguish. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you, and Sheol who will give you praise. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this time that we have to hear from you, God. And Lord, I just want you to be closer to me. I want you to comfort me in my grief. Lord, I thank you for catching and knowing every tear, for knowing the deep, intimate cries of my heart. I thank you, Lord, that above all else at the end of the night, I can say that you are my savior and my king. So I just ask that you'd be with Ian tonight as he teaches us that we would um, come to know you better um, in this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, Tate. Good evening, everyone. My name is Ian. For anybody who doesn't know me, I'm one of the teaching pastors here. Uh, I'm going to set this watch right here so I can kind of, sort of, get everybody home by nap time. This is, uh, this, this, this is barbecue numbers right here. This is the, the few and the faithful. Congratulations. If you all made it to the barbecue and you're still here tonight, you are the Spartans of the Christian walk. We are picking up the, this evening in Genesis 23. So why don't we start opening our Bibles, Genesis 23. I'm reading from the ESV tonight. Uh, the ESV is uh, the Bible that's right in front of you in the pew. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those. Um, and before, before I get into the text, um, we're going to be looking at at least three chapters tonight. If it's not super late, we'll, we'll, we'll knock out a fourth chapter. But as I've been reading over these chapters again and again uh, this last week, um, the things that, that I just want us to, I want us to know sort of the trajectory that we're on before we even begin. And, and something that we're going to see tonight repeated over and over is this is not our home. Thank God. This is not the end of the story for us. It doesn't mean that we get to be frivolous or, or in any way um, disrespectful to this life or to this planet or to each other. We, we love each other. We treat each other with kindness. We, we model Jesus not only in our, in our interpersonal relationships, but also with just how we, we treat the earth. Um, and that's coming from a guy who, like, I started tire fires as a kid, you know? Like, but this isn't, this isn't our home. We have a home that is waiting for us, and we are not getting out of here alive. And we have no other choice but to follow Jesus. 
and he has made himself available to us. And come what may, the, the good things that cause us to praise, the hard things that cause us to weep, we can trust the Lord in all of the midst of it. There's n- there is no depth that he cannot reach. There is no place where he is not available. And so just keep that in mind as we're reading these chapters and, and we'll see the specific instances um, that I'm referring to as, as we continue on with this text this evening. So starting in chapter 23, verse one, we read this. We're coming to the close of Abraham's life. That chapter is ending, that generation is ending, and we're gonna, and we're gonna start seeing the promise of Abraham, the promise to Abraham, the covenant that God made with him start to uh, pa- be passed on to further generations. So Sarah lived 100 years and 20 years and seven years. That's how it's actually written. That's pretty cool. 127 years old, and these were the years of Sarah's life. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron in the land of Canaan. So Kiriath Arba, just to, just to help us remember that the Bible is connected in every, every page, every chapter is connected to every page and every chapter. And, and here it says, that is Hebron. She died at Kiriath, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Kiriath Arba is the first name, and it's actually the name of one of the Nephilim. It's named after the greatest man of the Nephilim or of the Anakim. We read in Joshua chapter 14, the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and Arba was one of the greatest men among the Anakim. And this is one of those mysterious things where after, after the flood, there's, there's the Nephilim before the flood, these mysterious people who are sort of this weird crossbreed between the physical and the, and the spiritual, and they're described as giants, but we also see them after the flood. And in Numbers 13, whenever the spies go into the land of Canaan to, to scope it out and see what was going on, they, they report back, like, we can't go in here. These people are huge. They're the, they're the sons of Anak. They descended from the Nephilim. And here, one of the greatest of them had, an, uh, had a town, an area named after him, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So this is connecting everything together. These people still exist, and eventually one day the name will be changed to Hebron. And so Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up before his dead, and he said to the Hittites, these are the people who descended from Ham, they descended from Heth. Remember the, remember the, the table of nations in chapter 10, right after the flood, we got a list of, of generations of people who spread all over the earth. And so the Hittites are a people who came, they descended from Ham, they descended from specifically a guy named Heth. I am a sojourner, he says in verse four, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to, or hinder you from burying your dead. I love, I love this. So here's, here's, one of the, here's the, the, the beginning or one of the first examples of what we're talking about. This is not our home. Abraham was told by God, Go, leave your father, leave your country, leave your kindred, and go to a place that I'm going to show you. And we considered a couple weeks back that Abraham landed. He, he planted his tents 
by the Oaks of Mamre, and he stayed there, and it's been 60 plus years at this point, but listen to what he says. He's been there for 60 years, but he still says, I am a sojourner, and I am a foreigner among you, and part of that is that Abraham doesn't legally own any property. When We're going to talk about that here in a minute, but I think that the greater reality here, what Abraham is pointing to is this is not our home. 60 years in one place, you could consider that your residence. But he says, I'm a sojourner. I'm a foreigner. I have no land of my own to bury my wife. And this is one of the most, this is one of the most anchoring and foundational. This is, this is where I go whenever I can't sleep at three o'clock in the morning and, I'm, and I start doing that, either the, the hate monologue where I'm like, ah, I just, I'm, you know, I'm pushing 40 and I should have done this and I should have done that, but here I am. And then, and then I start thinking about my little girl and there could be a car accident or there could be lead paint on the floor like I had when I was a kid and she's going to get messed up teeth and a crooked eye. She's going to die in a car accident. What's going to happen to my wife? Portland's getting scared. Just on and on and on and on the fear that we can just that we can just savor without even really wanting to and time and time again I, I, I land back in the scriptures he will wipe away every tear from our eye do you trust the Lord in this life you will have trouble Jesus said in this world you will have trouble John 16 but take heart I have overcome the world we are sojourners and exiles here if Jesus Christ is your savior if he has saved you from your sins if you have put your faith in him this is not your home maybe you've lived here 60 years maybe you've lived here 80 maybe you've lived here more this is not your home the last night that he was with his disciples his last night before his crucifixion, Jesus said to his disciples, in my father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. And I love that because he emphasizes the relationship more than he emphasizes the location. What is heaven going to be like specifically? Well, we have some ideas in scripture, but what we know for certain is that we're gonna be with each other and we're gonna be with Christ without sin forever. We will be home. No more crying, no more weeping, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. Peter calls us, it's almost a throwaway phrase in his first letter. He says, you as sojourners and exiles abstain from the passions of your flesh. His point isn't even the sojourners and exiles thing. He just, he throws that in there because it's just true. Peter knew that this wasn't his home. Hebrews 11 verse eight says this. I'm gonna labor this point because this is awesome. Our home is with Jesus. Hebrews 11 verse eight says this. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going but by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and with Jacob heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. 60 years in the same zip code, and he still says to these people, I am a sojourner and I am a foreigner. So would you give me a place where I can bury my wife? But he's not looking for a handout. He wants to buy a place outright. The Hittites answered him, hear us, Lord, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. 
None of us will withhold you, withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. It's very convicting to me that even as a quote-unquote sojourner who's been around for 60 years, his neighbors see him as a prince of God. His, his, his neighbors know what he's about. And that bothers me. Because my neighbors are sometimes the first people that I can complain to about politics, the speed bumps that should be there or should not be there, how many people park in front of my driveway on a weekly basis. The, the neighbors are so familiar that I can, I can be a complainer. I can just be that neighbor that's fun to like look over the fence and, and just complain about all the things that we love to complain about. That, that, that like the, the, the break room water cooler gossip thing. You know, and I was convicted by this. They come to him and they say, you are a prince of God. I, 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 I would rather that people were like, yeah, that's the, that's, the, that's the pastor's house, or at least that's that Christian's house. That's that guy who loves Jesus. We don't go there on Halloween. Something like that. I don't know. I don't have a problem with Halloween, but I'm a soldier and I'm, an, and I'm a foreigner among you. So bury your dead in the choice of our tomb. And Abraham arose and he bowed to the Hittites, verse 7 to the people of the land, and he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price or for the full silver, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. And now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham, in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of the city, he said, No, my Lord, you hear me. I give you the field. I give you the cave that is in it. Inside of the sons of my people, I give it to you. So bury your dead. And Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, In the hearing of all of the people, No, you hear me. Give me the price. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land for what? 400 shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. So Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named. In the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So there's no, there's no real way to know exactly how much money that is. Most, most estimates are that it was about 10 pounds of silver. You know, the dollar, the dollar number isn't, isn't really important. But, but what's, what's interesting here, what some people have pointed out, is that, it, is that at first the Hittites are like, no, take, take the spot for free. Don't even worry about it. And Abraham not wanting anybody to be doing him any favors, says, no, I, I, will, I will pay for this. I think, I think that there's a lesson there as well. There's nothing wrong with accepting help. There's nothing wrong with accepting help. But even Paul in the New Testament is like, I didn't take anything from you. I earned my living. And I just think that it speaks to Christians being a reputable people who just could be above accusation. You can't even accuse us of being freeloaders. And people do. People do. And maybe sometimes rightfully so, unfortunately, but Abraham doesn't, doesn't let that happen. He, he, he counts out about 10 pounds of silver for the land. But it's interesting, in, in Jeremiah, we don't know exactly how big the field is, but Jeremiah also buys a field for silver. And it says there in Jeremiah 32, I bought the field from, from Anathoth for 17 shekels. 
So it was either a significantly smaller portion of land, which could be true, but most scholars and commentators think that what Ephron is doing here is he's gouging a sucker. You want my land? All right, 400 shekels. How about that? But Abraham pays the price. He doesn't get into a bidding war with the guy. He listened to Ephron and he weighed out the silver for Ephron according to the weights current among the merchants. And so the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout the whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field that the cave, and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. And now Abraham was old, verse chapter 24. He was well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household who had charge of all that he had, that he had put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. So Abraham is getting old. He wants to find a wife for Isaac. And so he takes his servant, the one who was oldest in his house, who had charge of all that he had. And this, this probably is uh, Ezrael from chapter 15, excuse me, Eleazar from chapter 15. Whenever the Lord comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to give you all of these gifts. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you uh, a lineage. I'm going to give you nations that are going to come from you. And Abraham says, the only one who's going to inherit my house is my servant Eleazar. And the Lord says, no, not Eleazar but a son from your own body. This, this likely is, is Eleazar, who is told to come and to put his hand under Abraham's thigh, which is just a way of shaking hands. And I think that we should, we should bring it back. Someday, Ella's gonna bring her boyfriend over, and it would just be so cool to be like, son, put your hand under my thigh and swear to me, or else. <laughs> Actually, the cutting animals in two and walking between them, that would probably be better. I've got time to think about it, though. I've got like 45 years before she starts bringing boys over. Put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites with whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and to take a wife for my son, Isaac. And the servant said to him, perhaps the woman won't be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then make your son go back to the land from which you came? And Abraham said to it, be sure of this, or make for certain, see to it, that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. You get the point pretty quickly. Abraham says again and again, do not take my son back there. They're going back to, eventually we'll see is to, to Mesopotamia, but, Mesopotamia, but I, 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 again, I see this, this, this land 
that Abraham was taken from. This is sort of, this is, I think, the opposite. I see the opposite of what happened with Lot's wife. Whenever the Lord said, the, Lord, the angels of the Lord came down and they got Lot and his family out of Sodom right before the fire came down and it says that Lot's wife turned around and looked at the city and that she turned into a pillar of salt. And you read that at first and it's like, man, that is a, that is a, that is a harsh deal. Man, you know, you read that and you're like, that's a little bit over the top, but, but the Lord always does what is right. We're thinking wrong. And, and Josh drew this out of the text last week. It says that she, that she looked into the city, but she wasn't just looking at it as an observer. She wasn't a tourist. She wasn't observing some museum piece under, under the glass. She was longing for Sodom. She turned around and she longed for it. And you remember the story, I mean, Sodom had gotten into the culture of Lot's family. The, the sexual immorality, the hubris, the arrogance, the violence. Just after Lot and his family are saved from the fire and brimstone, Lot's two virgin daughters get him blackout drunk, and they both get pregnant by him. That's the spirit of Sodom. It had gotten into the blood into the DNA of Lot and his family. And that was what was in Lot's wife. She turned around and she looked longingly at the city. And, and I hadn't ever realized that before. I had never done a deep dive on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I was really, I was really, I was troubled by that personally. And I was convicted by it because I grew up right here. I was born in Southeast. I was raised in Southeast from, I mean, all over Southeast, Hawthorne, Belmont, Division Street, all the way into Selwood and beyond, Alberta Street. I used to live with this guy here in the Orange Beanie, and he was around when I was, I was, I was tearing it up in the city, and, it was, and, it, and none of it was good, but I would be a liar if I didn't say that there are still times because sin is fun for a season, that there are still times, even after I've met, the, met Jesus and been born again and regenerated, that I, I cruise by those same places, those same apartment complexes, the same street corners, the same bars, the same hotels, all the same houses. The very first house where I ever got drunk is right behind Pepino's on 38th and Hawthorne. It's right there. I drive by it all the time. And there's still this weird longing that I have, remembering when I was a 15-year-old kid and the world was open to all these possibilities and I was drinking and meeting girls for the first time and experimenting with drugs. And, and I, I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't know what it is, but there's something about that still where it's like I can, I, that, it's like when you smell food and it makes your mouth water, it's like there's still this longing for that. And I know better, and I haven't gone back to those places, but in my mind, I will daydream about it sometimes. I will look back at Sodom longingly. And Abraham is saying, do not take my son back to where I came from. The Lord has told us to come here. The Lord has given us this land. He has promised us this land. I just bought a, just bought a, a plot of land here. We're gonna stay. Do not go back there. And so this isn't, this isn't about our cities. This isn't about our homes. It's not, it's not about whether you live in Portland or, you know, you, you move away or, you, or that's, that's really not the point. The, the point is, though, following the Lord because you see this. This is a, a pattern that you see throughout all of Scripture. The Lord told Lot, leave Sodom. The Lord told Abram, leave Ur of the Chaldees and go to a land that I will show you. The Jesus 
God incarnate came to earth and he took 12 individual men and said, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. We get to Luke chapter 8. A man who's living in caves, stark naked, cutting himself with stones, has a legion of demons living inside of him, is released from that power. And he says to Jesus, let me come with you. And Jesus says, no, you stay. Go back home and tell everybody how much the Lord has done for you. This is about following the Lord. And it, it, it haunts me every day of my life. When I met my wife, our plan was to quit our jobs, join Samaritan's Purse, and travel around the country rebuilding homes for people that had their homes destroyed in natural disaster. We were going to be footloose and free and nomadic. And the Lord said, nope, you're staying in Portland. I got hired here. My dad died. I got to stay in Portland. I love it here, and I want to be gone every day of my life. But being, obe but being obedient is, is peaceful. And so whatever the Lord is calling you to do, he said to the demoniac, stay. He said to Abraham. He said to Lot. He said, go. And Abraham is, is, is saying, the Lord called us to be here, and so we're going to be here. Do not take my son back to Mesopotamia. I got more Bible verses to feed into that, but I've spent too much time on that point, so we're going to move on. This isn't our home. We have a city that is awaiting us, so here we can just be obedient to the Lord wherever it is that he tells us to go. Do not take my son back there. So his servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and he swore to him concerning this matter. So verse 10. And the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and he went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. This is a 500, if you, I didn't do the, the map on the, on the big screen tonight, but this is a 550 mile journey down in the Negev. So like in the southern region by the lower end of the Dead Sea, all the way back up past the Mediterranean Sea, all the way to the northeast, back into Mesopotamia, which means between two rivers between the Tigris and the Euphrates. It's a long trip, and he took 10 camels. Remember that, 10 camels. He loads up 10 camels, and he heads to Mesopotamia, verse 11, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening when the women go out to draw water. So this is really interesting, and it's just sort of a study note. The time of evening when the women went out to draw Water. This gives us insight to John chapter 4, which, by the way, men in the room, starting uh, December 4th, we're going to be going through the Gospel of John in seven days. We're going to meet here at 7 a.m., 7 to 8 a.m. We're going to go three chapters a day, okay? In chapter 4, Jesus is on his way down the, down the mountain from Jerusalem. He heads up towards Sychar to the north, and there he meets a woman at a well, and it's in the heat of the day. John makes make sure to note that it's in the heat of the day. And everybody's like, why, why, like, why in the heat of the day? Is this weird? And commentators have, have, have always said, well, it's because she's, she's hiding something. She, women didn't go in the heat of the day. This is a dry, arid, hot climate. They're carrying gallons of water on their shoulders. It's hot. They're fully clothed. It's heavy. They went in the evening. And so it says here, but the woman in John chapter 4 was hiding something. She was hiding from, from the public eye. She didn't want to be around other people, so she went during the day. And people say, well, how do you know that? How do you know that women went in the evening? Right here. Genesis 24, 11. The time when women went out to draw water was in the evening. And, and he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. 
Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. So let the young woman whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed to your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Now, I believe that the servant's tone here is respectful and cordial and kind and reverent, but he is telling God what to do. He's showing up to town and he's saying, here's how this needs to work. Here's what you need to do for me. Here's how I'll know that I can move forward. And I love that it happens exactly as he asks. Sometimes the Lord will do this. You don't always get away with it because the Lord in his wisdom will sometimes not give us the things that we're asking for. But in this moment, in this instance, it's, it's, just, like, it's just like with Gideon. You guys know the story of Gideon in, in Judges 6? He's the least of the, he's, his clan is the least of the clans, and he's the least of, of the people of his clan, but the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, you're gonna be a warrior. And he starts building Gideon up, and Gideon's like, wait a minute, if I'm gonna do this, I need some, I need some proof, please. I'm gonna lay a fleece out in the grass, and in the morning, could the fleece be soaking wet and the grass around it be dry? Then, then, I'll, then I'll know that you're serious. Then I'll know that it's really the Lord who's talking to me. And the Lord grants him that. That's exactly what happens. And the next day, he says, Lord, don't get mad. I just really, I'm having a heart. Please, just one more. This time, could the grass be soaking wet and the fleece be bone dry? And the Lord, in his grace and in his wisdom, lets that exact thing Transpire, And so here it is in verse 15. Before he had even finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, Milcah, the, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. And the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. And I love this because we're just, we're talking about the promise of Abraham going on to the generation of Isaac and and further down the line from there, and the Lord is just working precisely, and he's working quickly. This is, <laughs> Abraham waited a long time for his son to be born, but then he sends his servant to find a wife, and boom, there she is, just like that. The Lord is working precisely, and he's working quickly, and the young woman was very attractive. She was a virgin, and so the, virgin, and so the servant ran up to meet her and said, verse 17, he said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar, and she said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will now draw water for your camels until they are finished drinking. Now this is, remember how many camels he brought? Verse 10, 10 camels. It's one of those cool things that's easy to remember. 10 camels, verse 10, you'll never forget it. He brought 10 camels, and I did a little bit of reading. I didn't do a ton, but camel, this is a 550-mile trip. Camels can drink anywhere between one to 300 gallons of water. I don't, I don't think that Rebecca, big as her shoulder muscles may have been, ran and got 300 gallons of water for each of the 10 camels. But she, she ran back, and she got enough for the camels that it says that they had finished drinking. Verse 20, she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and she ran again to the well to draw water and she drew for all his camels. And the man responded the, the best way that he could have. The man stared at her in silence. Imagine the, the labor. It's, it's, that's quite impressive. 
The man stood there and he watched in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. So this is why it's significant. Nobody's just going to say, let me water all ten of your camels until they're done drinking. But here is Rebecca, and that is exactly what she does until they had finished. So he stares at her to see if the Lord had prospered his journey. In verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking, he busts out the bling. The man took a gold ring, weighed half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms that, that weighed ten gold, that t- 10 gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? He doesn't say a word. He watches her load up gallon after gallon after gallon after gallon for the camels and just gives her the gold. I love it. He knows. He knows. He steps forward in boldness. And then he says, whose daughter are you? And do you have room for us to say? She, she said, verse 24, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. And the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. And then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Blessed be the Lord. The servant has success. He prayed for success, and he has it. And I love that it didn't cause him to gloat, but it causes him to worship. And this should be our heart posture. When things work out for us, when the Lord answers our prayers, there's a a lot of ink that has been used and a lot of things that have been put into print to console people for that time when it seems like the Lord is being silent. And I don't know if there's as much that has, that has helped people navigate when the Lord just throws blessing upon you like that. But, when it, I, but I think that we're given an example here of this servant. He bows his head and he worships the Lord. He doesn't gloat. He doesn't pat himself on the back. He doesn't give himself any gold trinkets. He worships the Lord. He, he gives a prayer of thanks. And I think he says, he's, he's, he says in his prayer that the Lord has, has, as for me, he says, as for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. This is Abraham's brother's granddaughter, his master's kinsman. He says, the Lord has led me. And, and as I was reading this, I, 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 I felt that twinge that maybe sometimes you feel when you're reading, reading scripture. And I, and, I, and I feel like the Lord put on my heart that, that there's a word here. He, he says, the Lord, Lord led, led me. And I, I've, known a lot of, I've known a lot of people. And I, I personally, and maybe you can relate to this, Lord, help me with fill in the blank. And then you do this. You ever do that? I'm like, okay, Lord. You know what, Lord, I would love, I would love to get married. I would love it if I could find a Rebecca. So, dude, you got to get out there. You got to get moving. You need to be. You need to be led. And at my and it, and, I, and I can't and I can't give the specifics. But I know a lot of people who have who I, I've been at Dora Hope for a long time. And there's been a lot of instances in my life and in the life of people around me who I don't know. It's it's like a it's a fear thing. It's a lack of faith thing. But there there's something that somebody feels like a, an education, a degree, a housing opportunity, a job opportunity, a, a, an opportunity for romance, and they're just too scared to to go outside. 
And the Lord is going to, the Lord is going to lead you. Friends, we are going to make mistakes. We are going to get hurt. Ella just put her hand on the stove while it was on for the first time. Scared me half to death, but that little girl is on the move. That sort of stuff's going to happen. It's going to happen. And I, and I love that this guy, he left in faith. He went 550 miles. He's at a well. And his, his response is, I didn't know exactly what was going to happen. My boss even told me if the young lady doesn't show up or if she doesn't want to come with me that I'm free from the oath, so I don't know what's going on here. But the Lord led me to the house of my master's kinsman. I just succinctly put, trust the Lord as you go. Move forward in wisdom. Move forward in wisdom. Start that business. Ask that girl out. Ask that guy out. Take some risks. Have kids. If, if, Angie and I were so scared to have kids when we got married. We just really didn't want to do it. That was so dumb. We could have, we should have just done it. We're having so much fun, but we lived in fear for so long. Don't let fear override your faith. Don't be, you know, don't be reckless, but go, you know, go do some stuff. I think that it's okay for us as Christians. We sometimes get so pent up and so scared to go out into the world that we, that we neglect something that the Lord might very well be leading us to. And so prayerfully and with wisdom and with counsel, go. The Lord has led me to the house of my master's kinsman. And so the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. And so Rebecca, verse 29, had a brother whose name was Laban. And we will meet Laban again. He's a bit of a shyster. He's a bit of a liar. He's deceitful. And we already get a little bit of a flavor of that right here. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. And as soon as he saw the ring... It's a nose ring, by the way. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring, and he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. And so the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. I don't buy it. I have a sister. I have a mother. Technically speaking, if you, you guys know who know my story, I have two mothers. I have a daughter, I have a wife, and I have a mother-in-law. I'm surrounded by women. And I'm never, ever, some guy is around, I'm never like, oh, come in, wash your feet, have a drink, here's a LaCroix, kick your feet up. Ah, Laban's up to something. He sees the gold. He sees the bracelet. He's chasing that paper. That's what he's doing. He sees the gold, and he invites the men in. And so the men came into the house. Verse 33, and the, the food was set before him to eat, but the servant said, I will not eat until I, have, until I have said what it is I have to say. And so Laban said, speak on. So verse 34, he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master. He has become great. He has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and male servants and female servants and camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore to my son, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him he has given all that he has. And my master has made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and to take a wife for my son. And so I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. I mean, after all, it's a 550-mile journey. 
But he said to me, the Lord before whom I have, uh, I have walked will send an angel with you to prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son, from my clan and from my father's house, and then you will be free from my oath. And when you come to my clan, when you come to my clan and, they, and if they will not give her to you, then you will be free from my oath. And so I came today to the spring and I said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink and who will say to me, drink, and I will also draw water for your camels. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water, and I said to her, please let me drink. And she quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. And so I asked her, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. Stop. Do you guys notice a bit of a difference? Now, I know that this is very repetitive, but the Bible is never repetitive just arbitrarily. There's always things to learn. But what I want to point out tonight is, is there is a human element here. Did you notice that there are some things that were reversed? The story is almost verbatim, but the servant switches the, the order of, 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 one th- of two things. In verse 22... Rebecca comes, she waters the camels, the servant watches her silently and just gives her the gold. And then says, whose daughter are you? But when you're talking to the family, that could sound kind of weird. I'm from a faraway place, I've got all this money, I've got all these camels, I've got all these men, and I just gave your daughter some gold. And now all of a sudden, she's invited me to your home. When he's relaying the story back to the family, look in verse 47, he said, I asked her, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So then I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. And then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master and Abraham. I think it's just kind of a cool, a cool human note. And if there's more to it than that, I, I am not aware of what it is. But I think that it's pretty cool that this guy was like, you know, this might be kind of weird. So I'm just going to, I am just going to switch it up a little bit if that's cool. Um, and probably most commentators believe that the reason why we're dealing with Laban, the brother, and not her father is because her father was either dead or he was old enough that he's just not really involved with this whole situation. So the servant is talking to the brother. Whose daughter are you? And then, and then I gave her the gold, the gold bracelets and put the ring in her nose. I'd, I'd like to watch that on the Blu-ray. Whenever we get to heaven, Angie and I joke a lot about hoping that the actual live event of all these biblical stories are on DVD and we can watch them actually happen as if it was a documentary. I'd love to watch the the interaction of this stranger servant putting a ring in Rebecca's nose because it's just not, that's a good way to catch yourself a, a lawsuit around here or a restraining order. So I put the ring in her nose and the bracelets on her arm and then I bowed my head and I worshiped the Lord. Notice again. He's recounting that. I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Verse 49, now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me 
And if not, tell me. That way I may turn to the right or to the left. If this isn't going to work out, I'll just go my way, is what he's saying. I'll just, I'll just turn around, and it will be as if I was never here. But then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord, and we cannot speak to you bad or good. What, that, what they're really communicating is, is this is, a, this is above my pay grade. It doesn't really matter how we feel. This seems to be of the Lord, so I guess we're just... Let's just let this be. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. And so Abraham's servant heard these words and he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry and silver and gold and garments and he gave them to Rebekah. And he also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and they spent the night there. And when they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. And her brother and her mother had some time to think about it. They're very kind of hands off. You're like, you know what? This, is, this seems to be of the Lord. She's here, go take her, be her master. But then you notice what he did. He gave costly ornaments to everybody. Now, Rebecca's going to go back with the servant, so she'll be gone. But he also gave costly ornaments to mom and to big bro. And it seems like they slept on it overnight, and they're like, you know what? This might be a cash cow. Why don't we, why don't we milk this for all it's worth? So her brother, verse 55, and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us for a while at least 10 days, and after that she may go. Why the cold feet? And especially it says, let her remain at least 10 days. The Hebrew there is actually, it's a little bit ambiguous. It could be 10 days, it could be 10 weeks, it could be 10 months. It could be that, that, that mom and big bro are coming and they're saying, you know what, let us have one more year with our daughter before you take her. Eh? You know, Laban is a conniver. And he's not dumb, but the servant doesn't fall for it. He says, do not delay me. Verse 56, since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. Okay, fine. Well, you know what? Yesterday we said just take the girl, but now let let us ask her. Verse 57, let us ask the young woman. And so they called Rebecca and they said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Simple and plain as that. And so they went away, Rebecca and their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men, and they blessed Rebecca. And they said to her, our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. That means may your offspring rule over your enemies. Uh, so, so Rebecca just says, I, I will go. It was as plain as simple as that. And, and I just think that this is, this is just so cool. It just fits into the same pattern of these narratives. The Lord said to Abraham, go to a place that you do not know, but I will show you. And now his daughter-in-law, Isaac's wife-to-be, goes to a place that she does not know. She leaves her family, and she leaves with strangers to go meet a man who is a stranger who's going to be her husband. So verse 61, and then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. And thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Isaac had just returned from Bir Lahai Roy. Remember that's chapter 16, the well of the living one who sees me. It's where the Lord met Hagar. Bir Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. 
And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening and he lifted up his eyes and he saw and behold there were camels coming and Rebekah lifted up her eyes and she saw Isaac and she dismounted from the camel and she said to the servant, who is that man who's walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, this is my master. And so she took her veil and covered herself and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. He doesn't recount the entire story again. (laughs) This time the author of Genesis just says, and he told Isaac what happened. And so Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And I, I'm, I'm not the most allegorical, allegorical guy. I, I, I read guys who see allegory under every single stone, every number, every, every name of every piece of land or every city or every child. It's like there's this long allegory they get into. And some of it I, this, I think is overdone. But, but I, I do think that there is, there is maybe a cool image here of, of the father sending his servant to go get a bride for the son. Does that ring any bells? That just, that feels like a hug. That feels good. The father is sending his, his the, the spirit, he's sending the servant into the foreign land to bring out of it a bride for his son. We are the bride of Christ. And the spirit is convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The spirit is, is building up a bride for, for Jesus. The church is the bride of Christ. Maybe that's just me, but I think that that's cool. The father is sending his servant to get a bride for the son. Chapter 25. And so Abraham took another wife. Remember how chapter 24 started. Now Abraham was old. Chapter 25. And Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimron and Jokshan and Midan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. And uh, Jokshan fathered Sheba and Didan. And the sons of Didan were Asherim and Lethushim and, Le- and Leumim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah and Epher and Hanak and Abidad and Elda'ah. And these were the children of Keturah. Now, it... We've, we've seen this several times where the, the Bible isn't exactly chronological all the time. And it could, it could possibly be that even in his, his old age, that after his wife's death, Abraham took Keturah, who we're, who we're told in the book of First Chronicles chapter 1, was a concubine of, of Abraham's. First uh, Chronicles um, chapter 1 verse 32 says that Keturah was a concubine, but it's also likely that these children were born before Sarah had passed away. We, we really don't know, but that's just one of those technical notes for you to dive into if you're interested in that sort of thing. And so she gave, she, she gave birth to all of these sons, and Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, verse 5. So all these sons have been born, but Abraham still gave all that he had to Isaac. To the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts and while he was still living, he sent the rest of them away, but his son, they sent, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. So Abraham sends all of his other sons away, the sons of his concubines, 
because the blessing is still on Isaac. He blesses his other sons. Remember the Lord came to Hagar in the wilderness and said, I'm gonna bless you with sons. These are real human beings that were born. There's still a blessing, but the covenant relationship is through Isaac. And it, it also could be a, a pragmatic, maybe even a borderline safety issue. Remember what happened with Joseph? Joseph was, was getting a little bit big for his britches. He was his father's favorite and his brothers wanted him dead. And so there might be a little bit of a pragmatism here where, where Isaac, or Abraham's like, you know what, Isaac's, there's going to be some jealousy here. So he sends his other sons away, but he blesses them and he gives them gifts before he does. But here's, here's the real meat, verse 7. So the days and the years of Abraham's life were 100 years and 70 years and 5 years. I wish that we had a Bible translation that actually said that. That would be super cool. Abraham breathed his last. And he died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. This language is very specific that not only was Abraham old, he lived to be 175 years, but they were good years. And he, they were full years. He had a good life. He had a full life. He had an abundant life. He didn't just have many empty years. He had full years. And this is exactly what was spoken over him in chapter 15. This was a promise. The Lord said to him in chapter 15, 15, that you will, be, you will die at a good old age. And so Abraham passes away a good and full life. And as we're going to see in, in verse 17, that that sort of description is left out of Ishmael's description. When it's, when it's described that Ishmael dies, those sort of details are left out. Because this is very specific. He had a full good life and he passed away full of years gathered to his people verse 9 Isaac and Ishmael his sons buried him in the cave at Machpelah in the field of Ephron the son of Zohar the Hittite east of Mamre the field that Abraham had purchased from the Hittites there Abraham was buried with Sarah his wife after the death of Abraham God blessed Isaac his son and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy now these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, and Adbil, and Misbam, and Mishmah, and Dumah, and Masah, and Hadad, and Temah, and Jetur, and Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael. And these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. And these, these, are, the life, these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. And listen to this, 137 years, and he breathed his last, and he, <clears throat> and he died, and he was gathered to his people. And the people settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. And he settled over and against all his, kis his kinsmen. So he's not given the same description that Abraham is, but, but also this word for died. He, gave, he breathed his last and died. It's the word mut. And it means to be killed by, by punishment or to be murdered. And you remember when the Lord comes to Hagar in the desert, uh, he, says that, he says that Ishmael is going to be a wild donkey of a man and that he's going to live away from all of his relatives. And it's, it seems like that is, this is the kind of death that you would expect. For the, the literal Hebrew is a wild ass man who lives in aggression with the people around him. 
He died at 170, 137 years old. He breathed his last, and he, he, moot. he, he was either murdered or he died by the punishment of law. He died for a penalty. And he settled over against all his kinsmen. And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, his daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paran Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Guys, take note. I love that. He prayed for his wife. He prayed for his wife because she was barren. And here again, so I open, I open this up with just, just the statement that this is not our home. We are not getting out of here alive. And we are just shown again and again. This is a story about the Lord giving the promised seed to one family. And the seed would be nations. And this is the second time that we have met a woman who is unable to have children. For, for being in the family line in which there's going to be nations, there's going to be more people than there are count the stars in the sky the Lord said to Abraham, if you can count them, more will your descendants be. But for the second time, here is a woman who is unable to have children. And we're going to see with one of Jacob's wives the same thing. A woman who is unable to have children. It just is reemphasizing that the Lord, this is the Lord's promise. This is the Lord's doing. We are dependent on the Lord for everything, friends. For everything. Even if we can have kids. Even if we can make our own money. Even if we, we have air in our lungs and blood in our veins and able to move our extremities because the Lord is allowing us to do it at every single moment. All things are held together by him and for him. The molecular structure of our bodies is put together by him. And, and, and I know that our situations are not always ideal. Rebecca's was not ideal. Her husband prayed for her. We are dependent upon the Lord. He prayed for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. This, so, the, so, the twin, so she's pregnant, and the twins are struggling within her. This word for struggling is, is quite, quite violent. This is really... Really interesting. The word for struggle means to crush, to break, or to, grievi grievous, to grievously oppress. These two basically unconscious children in the womb are trying to break each other. This is human nature. And this is interesting because later in the, in the New Testament, Paul uses this as an example. He says, before, ja when ja before Jacob and Esau were born, before either child had done good or bad, these are two infants in utero, I don't even, they're, they're, they're babies in utero who are violently oppressing each other because this is just human nature. Before they're even consciously aware of it, they're not even really doing anything good or bad because they don't know what they're doing, but they're hurting each other. They're fighting with each other. And this is just the line all the way through life. Cain and Abel fighting with each other. Lot and Abraham fight with each other. Noah's sons fight with each other. Jacob and Laban fight with each other. Joseph and his brothers fight with each other. They try to have him killed. David and all of his brothers hate each other. They hate David. They hate that he's cool. They hate that he's chosen. They hate that he killed Goliath. They hate that he becomes king. Joseph's brothers hated that he was cool and he had a coat. 
They throw them into a well. This just continues on and on and on. It's all over the book of Daniel. Nation rising up after nation. Persia coming, Persia coming in, Babylon coming in, the Romans coming in, the Greeks coming in, just blood and violence and kingdoms trying to rise up their own power by squashing the people who came before them. This is what humans do. And we get a picture of it right here before even they knew good or bad. They're in there trying to kill each other. And time and time and time again, this malevolence, this violence, this bloody reality that we're born into. Remember what Joseph said at the end of, at the end of Genesis? This great declaration, this great, this great poignant moment of truth. He'd been thrown into a ditch. He'd been sold into slavery. He'd been lied about, thrown into prison. And then there's his brothers years, decades later looking for food. And he could have just let them starve to death. He could have just put them in prison. Remember what he says to him in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Every wave, every generation, every, every period of human history, we see this again and again and again. Wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, natural disaster, brother killing brother. Always remember, friends, that somehow in the midst of this chaos, the Lord is working it for good. Romans 8, 28, all things are working for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I don't know how he does it, but he does it. And maybe you're old enough, maybe you're walking, maybe you've walked with the Lord long enough to look back at the blood trail and go in your life and go, you know what? That was awful and I've got scars and, and, and calluses left over from that, but man, the bone never breaks in the same place twice. And I thank the Lord. Remember what David writes in the Psalms? Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. My goodness, the things that he puts us through and oh, the, the beauty that is there. It can harden us or it can soften us. And I've shared this before and I'll share it again because it was one of the most powerful moments of my life when my dad died. It was such an incredibly weird beautiful moment of worship because there was so much pain my dad had blue lips he was he had a gray face his he was gone all that was left was this stiff corpse and my wife and I were there with him at 5 30 in the morning singing because he's in heaven because the Lord had at that exact moment wiped every tear from my dad's eye absent from the body present with the Lord why because Jesus came and he entered into this malevolence into kingdom rising up against kingdom all of the mayhem that's happening in Israel right now and every war that has come before then and every war that we will have after every time a brother is trying to kill his brother Jesus entered into that and himself was killed in order to reverse all that death and my wife and I sat there by my dad's dead body and we sang. Not because it was mechanical, not because we were like, I think this is what we should do. It was as natural as breathing because we knew that he was with Jesus because Jesus brings life and immortality to light, amen? He entered into this mess to reverse it and to redeem it. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Where am I? Okay, so. You have two nations inside of you. The children are struggling. She inquired, she inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the other shall serve the younger. And so when her days to give birth were completed, look, or behold, there were twins. And the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, 
And they called his name Esau. And afterwards, his brother came out, and his hand was holding Esau's heel, and so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Esau is born hairy and red, and Jacob is born right behind him, holding on to his heel. And you know, there, there's, there's, there's a lot of writing that, is actually, that actually goes into, Jacob kind of ruins this name. Uh, th- there's some etymology, the, the name Jacob is actually like, I've got your back. Like, you're, you're, you're going out first, I've got you, I'm coming right behind you, bro, I got your back. But then Jacob reverses that. And we see this in chapter 27, the second time that Jacob does his brother dirty, Esau says, isn't he appropriately named? Heel snatcher, he trips me up. That became, that became what it means, but, but there's, a, there's a lot of people who study the Hebrew language that, that believe that it didn't start that way, but that Jacob turned this heel-snatching idea into a pejorative. I'm going to grab your heel so that you trip and fall and split your lip open. So the boys grew up, verse 27, and Esau was a skillful or a knowledgeable hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Even, even here, Jacob was a quiet man. Um, that word means quiet, professional, or like kind of almost, almost like a regal, like he's, like he's dwelling in tents, he's almost regal, and, and morally pure. So Jacob seems to start good. The brothers are trying to kill each other in the womb, but his name at least starts good, but then he, he perverts it with his actions. So we're clo- closing out here the last, last few verses. So once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Literally in the Hebrew, he says, feed me some of that red stuff. Yes, this red stuff. That's what he says. And the word for feed is very specifically used typically for animals. Esau is acting like a wild, hungry animal, barging into the house, full of hunger, passions are high, and he just wants to eat. He's ravenous, he's like an animal. Feed me some of that red stuff. He doesn't even know what it is. That red stuff right there, yeah, give it to me. Let me eat some of that, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name is called Edom, which sounds like the word red in Hebrew. So Jacob, Jacob said, well, sell me your birthright now, t- today, right now. And Esau said, I, I, I'm as good as dead. So what, what use is a birthright to me anyhow? And so Jacob said, well, well, swear to me, swear to me right now. And so he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. And so Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and he drank and he rose and he went away and Esau despised his birthright. And this is one of the most difficult passages of scripture for me personally because this carnivore this this hunter this killer this guy who's got bulls and buck and elk hung up in his garage skinning him from stem to sternum sold his birthright for a vegetarian meal it don't make no sense and i'm sorely disappointed but that's what he did that's how that's how foolish this was Give me some of that red stuff. It's vegetarian. Give it to me for lentil stew. And he ate and he drank and he rose and he went away. Esau despised his birthright. And, and, and so here, here is the problem. He, he despised his birthright. That word for despised 
can be a synonym with the word kelal that we saw in chapter 12. Whenever the Lord comes to Abraham, he says, I'm gonna make you a great nation. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who kelal you, those who treat you with contempt, those who despise you, or treat you as worthless, I will treat as worthless. Remember, Hagar did exactly that. She treated the family as worthless. She, she treated them with kelal. She despised Sarah and she was banished into the desert, but the Lord pursued her there. Esau here is despising his birthright. Whatever it is that the Lord is doing, whatever it is that the, is the promise for the family, is the promise for the lineage, he despises it. He doesn't, he doesn't care. Give me the lentil soup. What good is a birthright for me? It doesn't make any difference. He doesn't care about the family promise. And it's, it's interesting that it says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. And at the same time, equally true, Esau did exactly what he wanted to do. He didn't, he didn't act against his wishes. He forfeited his birthright. Isn't that interesting? This is that mystery of, of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Esau did what he wanted to do. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, and, and, and yet Esau came in hungry and was like, a birthright, I don't care. Give me the goods. And so he despised his birthright. So that is the close of chapter 25, another story of the, of the Lord working through human frailty and ignorance and hatred and sin, and the Lord is good. Um, let's close in a word of, a word of prayer just real quick because it feels appropriate, and then if, if we have any, any questions, we can close, close the evening with those. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your word, and, and, and Lord, I, I, I pray that as we go through step by step, verse by verse, through the scriptures, that we would come to, to know you more, that we would come to experience who you are in the, in the depths of our being, that we would understand your grace, that we would understand your word, that we would understand that, 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 we, that, we can, that we can go astray, that we can error in our ways, Lord, and that there may be consequences and that there may be, that there may be discipline, Lord, but that you are good and that, as Abraham said, is there anything, is, will the judge of the earth not do what is right? Of course, the judge of the earth will do what is right. So, Lord, help us to trust you. This is not our home. And life is, life is, is hard and it's scary and our, and our bodies betray us and our minds betray us and, and the devil is working in the midst trying to make everything worse. And so Lord, may our focus be yours. May we, may we, Jesus, may we please come to understand the scriptures more and more and more in, in a way that you understood them when you were here on earth reading them yourself. Jesus, may we have those eyes. May, may our eyes be opened, our, our, our physical eyes and the eyes of our heart to understand your grace and to fall more in love with you and to be more, more and more conformed into your image. Thank you for this evening. Thank you for this opportunity. And thank you for everybody that's here tonight. Be with them in, in whatever way that they personally need. King Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.